You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. I walked into the building today. I sat in my office for a little while, and I came out to pray with the worship team. And before we began praying, I looked at the room and saw, obviously, that it's empty. And I had this weird thought that kind of changed the tone for the message today, which was a little lighthearted, and now I feel like the Lord is doing something very symbolic right now in your lives, specifically because you're home. And when I looked at the empty room, what thought went through my mind was, I wonder if this is what God saw when he walked into the garden after Adam and Eve had sinned. Expecting to see life in people, he saw nothing because they were hiding. And I had that thought when I saw the emptiness of the room, and I felt the sadness of not seeing people that I love here. And I thought, I wonder if this is what God saw when he walked into the garden that day and didn't see Adam and Eve. And I wonder if this is what he sees when he goes to us and we're hiding our true self from him and we're hiding who we really are from him and we're either hiding from the presence of God by running away or we're hiding from the presence of God by trying to be so good and moral and well-behaved that we're doing those things to avoid God actually having to see our true self. We're not preaching on it today, but the, in the parable of the prodigal son, the younger brother got away from the father by way of reckless living and leaving home. The older brother hid from the father by doing everything right to avoid the true loving gaze of a father who isn't so interested in our outward behavior but wants to look at our heart. And sometimes we use good moral behavior to hide from God. And so I think it's fitting for this message and the texts that we have that you're not in this building right now, but you're home. Because home is one of the places that we hide to when we're hiding from God. And then home is also one of the places we hide from when we're hiding from each other. And I feel like with you being home right now, there's symbolically some inner healing that needs to take place. And I believe you being home is when Jesus said The outside of the cup is clean, but the inside is filthy. His desire is to clean the inside of the cup. And right now, your home symbolically now in the private place of the inside of the cup. And I believe that through the very flawed attempt to preach a sermon, I believe that God is going to take these words today and do what he does best and transfigure them to bring inner healing to your life. So I want you to think right now while you're watching of the reasons why and the places you go to hide from your true self. There's a lot of text in today's readings, and I want them to be part of the sermon. That's why I introduced now, and now we're going to go to the text. So listen to these verses and think about the part of your life that you want to hide from others, and by hiding from others, we hide from the Lord. Keep in mind, Adam and Eve hid from themselves first when they realized they were naked. And by hiding from each other, they were hiding from God. 
Deuteronomy chapter 30. Moses is speaking for God. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, that's all you have to do is keep everything, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. Listen to this very carefully, Salem. I call heaven and earth. I want you to remember these words. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. So it sounds like his assumption is that we're not going to follow the rules. Not a bad assumption. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. That I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Yikes. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. This is like a break, and then it gets even worse. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 to 9. Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church. But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Imagine you're listening to this letter written by Paul, thinking he's so excited to write to you, and he just called you infants. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. You were not ready to be adults. And even now you are not ready. Even as adults, you are not yet ready to be adult. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? In other words, you're divided. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and this is key, and I want you to remember this. You are God's field. You are God's building. Yes, that was the break from the terrible verses. Now, here's more very difficult verses for you. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 37. Everybody watching, take a deep breath, because Jesus is about to make everything impossible. Jesus is speaking. You have heard that it was said to those of old. In other words, you have heard that it was said to the people Moses was talking to, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. My brother is here right now, and I'm mad at him, and I don't know why, but now I'm liable to the judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. We may have been brought before the council a time or two. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Pause, Ian, put me back on for a second. Put me, put me on the TV. Tell me when I'm back on. I'm back on the TV. Whoever says you fool will be liable to hell. I read that and thought that's, if, if I can get to calling somebody a fool, I think I'd be in good shape. Like, that's the bottom? <laughs> anyway, I don't know. The worship team is laughing, but that just felt like that's the goal, to only say you fool. I'm way off, way off. Council, court, hell, get out the sunscreen, I guess. All right, you can put the, you can put the scriptures back on now. We still have so many more of these to go. Okay, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that someone has something against you, which is probably all of you when it comes to me, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. It's like, Jesus, please chill for a second. He goes on. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman or a man with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away. My, my left eye is a lazy eye, so we're getting close to possibly being able to tear it out and throw it away. <laughs> Maybe one of my toes caused me to sin, and that, because I walked where I shouldn't, I don't know. I don't know. This is off the rails now, and we haven't even started. For it is better for you that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. He continues. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. He goes on. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no, anything more than this comes from evil. The word of the Lord, help me, O oh God. Make speed to save us. So with those encouraging texts aside, we have to read this and be realistic with what we're hearing. I'll say right from the gate, and I hope this begins from this comment that I'm making right now on, I hope that this begins an inner healing in areas where we feel ashamed and guilty. If you ever live under the taskmaster, 
the dictator of, if I only would have done better, maybe things would have went better. If I did a better job parenting, my kids would be better. If I did a better job spousing, my marriage would be better. If I did a better dot, dot, dot. If you live or have lived or have somehow become indifferent to the fact that you have the voice of an accusatory dictator in your life telling you that unless you get it right or if you had gotten it more right, things would be better. We need some inner healing because we're hiding. We're preparing for Lent, a season of healthy self-awareness. We're preparing for a season where God's light is going to shine into the darkness. And if we believe that his light shines in the darkness, we have to still admit that there is darkness in us for his light to shine into. But here's the first thing. It is not more willpower that God is looking to, for. He's not looking for us to be able to try harder and better. He's looking to heal us. If we're messing up, if we're getting it wrong, it's not because we're not trying hard enough. It's because we need healing. We need the gift of salvation to come into our life. And it needs to be said up front that God creates everything he speaks. Let there be light and there was light. Let there be fish and there were fish. He creates by speaking. And so whenever God speaks the idea of following rules, with the spoken word comes the created reality that he's giving us to be able to do what he's asking from us. When we tell people to follow rules, all we can do is demand. When God tells people to follow rules, he creates. I can only tell you to do something right. God can create in you the healing and the capacity to live better. So a sermon like this, texts like this in the Bible, are not God saying, see, I'm threatening you. It's God saying, I am creating in you the very thing that I'm asking for. Christ is a safe place to expose our sinful self to. When he called Adam and Eve out from behind the trees, they were wearing fig leaves. You've heard me say this before. And the Bible says that he clothed them in animal skins, which means the fig leaves came off and he clothed them with animal skins. And I believe that little detail there is to show us that Adam and Eve hid from God and then in order for God to cover them, he took their false covering off. And they were exposed before him for a moment. And being exposed before him did not cause him to reject them. It caused him to further clothe them. When he saw everything they didn't want him to see, it didn't push him farther. It brought him closer. They were able to be naked and not ashamed in the theological sense. It's okay for the false coverings to come off of our life in the presence of a God who is safe. Because the flaw that he sees draws him closer. 
and he covers us in ways we can never cover ourselves. Last week, we talked about how he refines us with, uh, metaphorically, soap and fire. He refines and cleanses us with soap and fire as if we were silver. And last week, we said that God doesn't make us silver. We already are. He cleanses and refines what we already are. So if you've ever lived under the voice of the dictator that says, because of the decisions you're making or because of the flaws you have as a human person, that you are some sort of metal that is not precious or valuable, when the Bible says in one of the most frightening passages that God is going to refine us like silver, we said this last week, he's not an alchemist that takes dull metals and turns them into silver. He's saying, you've never not been silver, you are silver, and you always will be silver. I'm here to cleanse and to clean the mud off of your life so that you can see what I already know, that you have been nothing but priceless before my eyes. This week, Christ's work has given us all the time we need to learn and grow and give others in our life the time they need to learn and grow. As the worship team was singing, a thought sort of went through my mind, and I realized that in Deuteronomy, Moses says that God is setting before us life and death, blessing and curse. Well, that verse could just skip right through your mind, but in reality, it's kind of amazing that he says that, because in Genesis, God said, the minute you sin, you'll die. And then in Genesis 3, God says, from now on, the ground is cursed because of you. So if by the time we get to Deuteronomy, God is saying, I'm setting before you life and death, blessing and curse, that must mean that the death he pronounced in Genesis and the curse he pronounced in Genesis is already coming undone to the point where he can set blessing and life before us. So before the gospel, in what we wrongfully call the Old Testament, which we should just call the scriptures, there's already mercy and grace permeated in these texts. Simply because he's saying, I'm setting before you life and death. I'm setting before you blessing and curse. Which means there's not just death and curse anymore, but there's also life and blessing. Because the work of Jesus is already working backwards before it ever even worked forwards. Okay, take a deep breath. September of 2021, I was about a week away from my first foot surgery, and was it Hurricane Ida, E? It was Ida. Ooh. Came up the coast, and sewage back up in our church, and we lost our entire basement to that sewage backup. And so we're down there. We're protecting it, we're mitigating it, we're renovating it, we're fixing it. And what happened was when the basement was open, 
when we gutted the walls, we realized, you know what, we need to fix the drainage system. And so we put in a new drainage system inside and outside. And then we renovated the basement, the foundation of the church. Week later, I had my first foot surgery. Almost a year later, I have to get a second foot surgery. And right around the second foot surgery, as I'm recovering from it, we have this pipe burst, and it goes back down to the basement. And now here I am. I'm just on the other side of recovering from a second foot surgery. And, and hopefully in a couple of weeks, we will be just on the other side of recovering from another basement flood. Whatever happens in this building is prophetic for what God wants to be happening in our life. And this kind of sermon and the Lenten season we're heading towards is God reminding us that no matter how much we build on our life, no matter how much we build on previous generations, no matter how good the foundation is that we set or that was set for us, we always have to go back to the foundation, repair it, maintain it, and sometimes even add some new things to it. And sometimes we have to see parts of that foundation go and new parts of that foundation become built. And so I don't think it's ironic that whether it's the foundation of my own body, my feet, or the foundation of this basement, God is reminding us that just because the foundation is good doesn't mean it can stay good if it's not maintained. Things have to be healthy. Things have to be fixed. And I believe that this season, he's calling us into the basement of our lives to look at the foundational parts of who we are, the part of us that takes on the most weight. The part of us that takes the most beating is our feet. It's the foundation of our body. It's the foundation of our church building. It's not judgment when he calls us there. It's for the good of everything we've built on that foundation that he calls us there. And he's safe. This is the God who covers us. This is the God who calls us silver. This is the God who's already working mercy and grace from a cross that has yet to happen for another 2,000 years. As Peter would later say, it's almost like Christ was slain from the foundation of the world because we were, Adam and Eve were born into mercy and grace. The cross already working before they were even put here. So I want us to see this. When we look at Matthew chapter 5, the verses that we read, we see how life and land can unravel when we live thinking that we have to get everything right or else. I'm going to say it this way. When we live like our behavior either secures blessing for us or avoids curse. We live selfish, self-centered lives, even in our own good behavior. When we think that if I live well, I can secure blessing for myself, we're like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to enter eternal life? And he left that conversation sorrowful. It's like the lawyer who came to Jesus and said, fine, I'll be a good neighbor. Who's my neighbor? And Jesus told the Good Samaritan parable and basically said, it's not who's your neighbor, it's are you the good neighbor? 
Whenever we think if I live right, I can secure blessing and avoid curse. We're not living for others. We're living for ourselves, And that is the beginning of death. So look what happens in Jesus' sermon in Matthew 5, beginning with anger. He reveals to us what happens when we try to manage our own life. So first he talks about anger. You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say, even if you get angry at your brother or your sister, you're already in trouble. And from anger, it moves to lust. That's an interesting digression there because anger is the moment when all you can do is just think about yourself. When all you can do is just think about what that other person has done to you and it's about vengeance. And all of a sudden, inside of unchecked anger... The spirit of lust creeps in so fast. If you want to ever know when you might be severely attacked in the area of lust, probably just after you were angry. And if you live angry at your own self, it's probably more often than you think because lust is not just a sexual issue. Lust is whenever you see anything in your life as the vehicle that can get you to where you want to go or that is keeping you from getting to where you want to go. Whenever we see anything in our life as the way that we can get what we want or the thing keeping us from what we want, we're lusting. So, and I think Jesus is being comical but also truthful. So after anger and after lust, next thing he talks about is divorce. It's the next thing he talks about. Because odds are, when anger goes unchecked and selfishness or lust goes unchecked, divorce is not far behind. And yes, he's talking about divorce between a husband and a wife, but this also indicates the breakup of all relationships. Whenever anger and whenever lust go unchecked, relationships fall apart. When we try to manage our anger, it only turns to lust. When we try to manage our lust, it turns to relationships falling apart. And what happens when relationships fall apart? We have to start making oaths. I promise I'll never do it again. I'm going to start in January eating better. I swear to God, I'm a changed man. If you watch talk shows during the week in the morning, you always hear somebody say, I know he was terrible to me, but I'm sure he loves me now. He promised he does. Oaths. I'm trying as hard as I can. I promise. I'm trying as hard as I can. And oaths are usually almost always wrong. Which is why what comes after oaths is retaliation. Jesus is a genius. When we try to manage our anger, it becomes lustful. When we try to manage our lust, relationships break apart. When relationships try to break apart, start to break apart, and we try to manage them, we have to use oaths. We have to start telling exaggerated truths to get people to believe us because we have no credibility or integrity. And when we do that, that person usually gets hurt and wants to retaliate. And then, it wasn't in our reading, but the next thing Jesus says is the first clue of what can rewind this. He says, love your enemies. And all of a sudden, this sermon goes from anger that leads to lust, 
and lust that leads to the breakup of relationships and the breakup of relationships that leads to having to make extended hyperbolic promises and that when those fail it gets to retaliation and then he throws in love your enemies and then he talks about giving to the needy and then he talks about praying the Lord's Prayer and then he talks about where your treasure is there your heart is he goes from the surface of our life, anger, lust, divorce, oath, retaliation, and then jumps way down into the inside of the cup and says, I'm introducing a new life to the life that you have, and it's a life that begins with loving your enemies and giving to the needy. And that doesn't start with us. That's the one of the first times Jesus is making the declaration that you're the ones who have lived in anger and lived in lust and lived in divorce and made oaths and wanted retaliation, and now I'm loving you, and I'm giving to the needy, and I'm praying over you, and as my life, my uncreated life flows into your breaking apart life, it rewinds. And when you love your enemies, there's no need for retaliation. And when there's no need for retaliation, there's no need for oath-making. And when there's no need for oath-making, it's because relationships are not breaking apart. And because relationships are not breaking apart, it's because there's no lust. And because there's no lust, it's because there was no self-centered, toxic anger. Because Jesus is rewinding the story. Christ converts the sword of the law into the plowshare of grace. He doesn't say, you have to do what I'm saying or else. He says, I'm offering you my life, which is the life that loved you when you weren't doing what I was saying, and it makes you a new person. You'll be able to love your enemies because I loved you when you were my enemy. Jesus, the, the, the promises in Deuteronomy were, if you follow all the rules, I will give you life and I will give you land. I will give you life and I will give you land. That was the promise. I will give you life and I will give you land. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, behold, I go to prepare a place for you. He's our life, and he is our land. He's our life, and he is our land. He is the space we need to be healed. He's the patience we need to be healed. And in that healing, we become life and land for those closest to us. We become life-giving instead of life-taking through anger, lust, divorce, and retaliation. And we become land for other people. Everybody should write this one down. We become land for other people. We become the space where people, that people have to be their true self and slowly learn to live better. We become the space. Jesus is our land. He's our space. And when we receive that as gift, not effort, 
not what we are reward for living well, but the gift we needed to live well. We become land and space for other people. God curses Adam with thorns, and Jesus wears a crown of thorns on his head. Adam is cursed with death, and Jesus steps into that curse. Jesus sweats drops of blood in a garden because God told Adam, by the sweat of your face, you will work the ground. And now I want everybody to hear this verse. Jesus, uh, the Bible said in Deuteronomy that heaven and earth will witness against you. Look at what John sees in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, the one that holds the memory of all of our sins, had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, the land, the space of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Moses said, heaven and earth will witness against you. And then John says, here's something interesting. I see a new heaven and a new earth coming, one that is not polluted with the memories of everything I've done wrong. And as soon as that heaven and earth come, that heaven and earth does not witness against us. It testifies to the work of Jesus. And as soon as it testifies to the work of Jesus, all of a sudden God says, I can be with them, and I can be their life, and I can be their space. This is what's happening in Corinthians. Paul is dealing with people in Corinthians, Salem, that have failed in every single one of the Beatitudes that Jesus preached. Look at the Sermon on the Mount and read through what Paul criticizes in Corinthians. Paul is essentially using the Sermon on the Mount to hold it up to his church and say, are they living it? There's lust, there's anger, there's retaliation, there's vengeance, there's the church not giving to the poor, there's preferring the rich, they're not praying well, they're not coming to the Lord's table well. But Paul is not saying, now you're losing your land, now you're losing your life. He's saying, I'm going to feed you spiritual milk until you mature. Well, what changed? They're failing in everything that God said, if you fail in this, you'll lose your land and you'll lose your life. And now they're failing in all those things, but they're not losing anything. They're being taught. What happened was Jesus. Because of the work of Jesus, we no longer live in the urgency to have to get it right now. We don't live under the weight of 
if I get it right, I'll be blessed, and if I don't get it right, I'll be cursed. Guess what? Terrible things are going to happen if you get it right, and good things are going to happen when you get it wrong, because the rain falls on the just and the unjust. But what is always happening is Jesus is now done something better than land. He's become our space. And he doesn't testify against us. He's our advocate to the Father that testifies on our behalf. And he gives us time to grow. He gives us time to learn. The greatest sin we will ever commit is the sin of refusing to learn from our mistakes. Stephanie said it when she was speaking and singing today. My friend Drake and I were talking about this in the office before service began. God lets us get up again. It was never part of God's idea that we wouldn't fall. God never had an expectation that we wouldn't fall. We're the only ones that have expectations that we won't trip. We're the only ones, if I'm in a room and God's in a room, I'm the only one in the room thinking that I won't fall or I shouldn't fall. God is the one in the room who's standing when I'm standing and who is dusty with the dirt I fell into when I fall. Jesus is the one who tripped and needed help carrying his cross to show us that he meets us in our trip, in our fall. When we land on the ground, Jesus got there first. It's not about never falling. It's about learning. It's about the wisdom of God filling us in the moment of our fall and showing us God would rather us learn than get it right. Because I could accidentally get it right. But when we learn about mercy and grace, not just about why we messed up, but when we learn who God is when we mess up, imagine who will be for our children when they mess up. Imagine who will be for our coworkers when they're nasty. Like my coworkers, I'm just kidding. Ian, Mom, and Jacqueline, I love you guys. <laughs> Imagine who will be for our own self if we learn who God is for us when we fall. Imagine who will be for our own self when we make mistakes. Imagine messing up and not beating yourself up. Imagine messing up and feeling convicted but not condemned. Imagine messing up and immediately being filled with the joy that God was there with you and he's going to give you the grace to repent. He's going to give you the grace to go to the people you may have hurt. He's going to give you the grace to learn from this and you're just going to be a little better on the other side of it. Instead of just trashing yourself, probably even before we mess up, assuming it's already happened. John, worship team, come join, come join. It turns out I preach shorter sermons when either you're not cheering me on or that I don't see that you're not listening and then just decide to keep talking until you do. When there's nobody in the room, I'm not cheered on and I'm also not, uh, what would be the word, provoked into teaching longer. John is so slow again. 
there's nobody here. Like, who are you, who, who, who you trying to do the walk for? Me? That's so sweet. Oh, you. That's right. Stephanie, his wife. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm a work in progress. Yeah, don't agree with that. <laughs> so fast. <laughs> I'm leave you with this, with this quick story before we go to the table. This kind of summarizes everything I just said. So if that seemed disjointed and ridiculous, this will put it together nicely. There is a rabbi who is a world-famous leader. His name is Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. <laughs> John, what did you say? And they walk into a bar. A priest and a rabbi and Frank walk into a bar. Frank's, Frank was already there. He said, Salem, we have so many problems. Like, I can't even tell you. So There's confession happening up here right now. It's just, Jesus was on the ground before I fell. Frank's in the bar in case somebody gets there first or needs to something. I don't know. I don't know what just happened. But thanks, John, for ruining that moment entirely. It take you forever to get up here, and then you do that. At least, if you're going to do that, get up here faster so 10 minutes don't go by. Oh, my gosh. When, he, when he, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs became a rabbi, they put him through a physical exam because they wanted to make sure that he was healthy enough for all of the places he was going to have to travel as chief rabbi. And one of the things they put him on was the treadmill, and they told him to run at a brisk pace, and they were just going to take measurements. And as he was running, he said to the doctor, are you doing this to see how long I can run? And the doctor said, no, I'm doing this until your heart rate maxes out. And then we want to have you stop running and see how long it takes for your heart rate to go back to normal. We want your heart rate to get all the way up. And then we want to see how long it takes for it to get back down to normal. And Rabbi Sachs said this. That is when I discovered that health is measured by the power of recovery. Health is measured by the power of recovery. Health is not measured by never getting hurt. It's measured by the power of recovery. In the gospel, health is not measured by never making a mistake. It's measured by our recovery our awareness, our ability to say, Lord, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Health is measured by the power of recovery. Jacob walked with a limp, but the limp implied that he was able to get back up again and walk. He had recovered. The basement is dented a little down there, but it's going to recover. I had two surgeries on my foot, but I'm standing here because of recovery. You've made mistakes. I've made mistakes. Frank clearly has made mistakes. <laughs> but he's here right now. <laughs> We're here because of the power of recovery. If we have that, if we receive that standard as a gift, we will give that standard of a gift. The power, the, the, the measurement of the health of our children is not in them being good kids. It's them one day becoming whole persons. It's not about kids 
that are really, really good when we go to the mall. It's about kids who are learning how to fall and get up again, fall and receive mercy and grace, fall and know that no matter how bad they are, their parents are going to be for, for there for them the minute they fall again. When they learn that, they will learn the power of recovery. Because recovery doesn't happen by yourself. The basement didn't fix itself. My foot didn't fix itself. The power of recovery. I've never messed up in my life and gotten back up again by myself. I'm not standing here as the pastor of one of the most amazing churches because I did it by myself. And I'm not doing it because I never fell down. I'm doing it because Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit have filled a lot of really good people to help me dust off my clothes time and time and time and time again. Because I have a wife at home who helps me get back up again. This is why we're here. So if you look back and you say, look how many times I have fallen. Look how many times you got up. Look how many times he healed you. Look how many times he opened your blind eyes. But they keep going blind again. But he keeps healing them. And then we come to the Eucharist. If you have your bread at home, we come to this meal and we look at all these broken pieces of bread and we recognize it because it's broken, because we get that. But Jesus holds it up. And when he prays over it and we eat it, the bread recovers. In us, it becomes whole again. It is the bread of recovery. It is the bread that fell from heaven. It's the bread that will be there again the next day for you. It's the bread of forgiveness. It's the bread of his body. It's the bread that he will never turn into a stone and throw at you and judge you. When the woman caught in the act of adultery, when all those men had picked up stones, Jesus turned every one of those stones into bread. Not when Satan told them to, but when Satan didn't want the stones to be turned into bread, Jesus turned them into stones that became the bread of forgiveness, and they dropped every one of them, and the woman was not stoned by them at all. When it's for himself, he'll never turn the stone into bread. When it's to forgive you, he will never pick up rocks to stone you. He'll turn them all into bread. Lord Jesus, on the night when you were betrayed, you had a dish of stones that you could have used to hurl at us for everything we did wrong. We looked at Deuteronomy chapter 30, we took the Sermon on the Mount, and we did the opposite with it. But you lived the life that you were demanding we live for us. And you gave thanks, and you took those stones, and you said, this is my body which is broken for you. It's not thrown at you. It's not hurled at you. I'm not putting your sins in a sling and throwing them right back at you. I'm feeding you forgiveness, and I'm inviting you to come to this table every time it's offered, and it should be offered a lot of times so that you can daily remember the taste of forgiveness, to receive it and to offer it. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you descend on this bread and make it for your people the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would descend and fall on all of the people listening and watching, that right now they would feel the weight of your glory, the weight of forgiveness, the weight of condemnation turning into motivated conviction, the weight 
of ambition to get back up again and try. The release of shame, the ability to come out from all the things we use to numb and hide ourselves and stand in the presence of God knowing the one who can see us is the one covering us. His eyes that see are really eyes that cover. His seeing is covering. His seeing is hiding what no one else will ever see. God, I pray that there's somebody listening to this right now on the inside of the cup in their own home behind the trees prophetically realizing that even the place we hide in becomes a garden. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but on Easter Sunday, that tomb became Mary's womb again and gave birth to Jesus again. You turn death into birth, and that's easy for you. You do so much in our life every day, and we thank you, and we rejoice over that, and we rest in that, and we pray, we believe, but help our unbelief. Help us where we don't believe this message. Help me where I don't believe in my actions, what I just preached. Heal our view of ourselves and change our expectations of what success is. Success is recovering well. And give us the grace to do that. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take them and nourish on them in your hearts by faith. Would you worship with us one more time as the worship team sings? Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.